0: Good
1: morning. I am so glad you decided to tune in to Let's Grab Coffee. I'm Sanaa, and this is a very special episode. It was about a year ago that we kicked off Let's Grab Coffee here on WYXR 91.7 FM. And since then, we've got to catch up with experts and professionals from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. I don't know about you, but I have learned so much over this past year. Now, if you're new to the show, don't worry. You can catch up on previous shows on wyxr.org or also in the podcast format, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. You can also find Let's Grab Coffee there. So we originally kicked off this show with a very timely conversation at the time with Dr. Rashawn Ray. We talked about health, policing, politics, and in fact, these are still very much shaping our daily lives even now. Now, one thing that I really love about catching up with all these different experts is that each show, I learn something new. Maybe I am surprised at some of the things, sometimes I'm even shocked at some of the things I've learned, but what I really love is when I look at my own daily life in a slightly different way, and that's exactly what happened in episode 18 when I got the opportunity to talk to Dr. Dana Miller-Koto. Now, she's an expert on math learning, and that episode we called There's No Such Thing as a Math Person, and this episode made me rethink my own relationship to math. Let's listen. Could you talk about why math learning is so important?
2: Absolutely. So, I'm going to te- look at it from two different ways. Um, I agree with both of them to a certain extent. Well, I agree with one of them wholeheartedly, and the other one, like, mm, yeah, it's kind of. Um, so <laughs> I start with the mm, kind of, and then we'll move to the like, nope, this is the reason. Um, and the reason I want to start here is because this is kind of how I start all my papers when I'm writing. So, you know, you're writing your introduction, you're like, okay, I have to sell this to someone. And I think the way that we, we sell math, Researcher, the importance of understanding how kids learn math from a from a, a STEM uh, perspective. So, like, oh, we have to get kids ready for STEM.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, one way to, and it's a very capitalistic way of thinking about it. It's just, oh, in order to be really competitive on a national uh, international stage, mm-hmm. or to get kids interested in um, a STEM job, especially if you're coming from an under resourced community, one way through up for upward mobility is to major in a STEM major, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a fine reason but it's not the only reason and shouldn't be the only reason right i mean if a kid wholeheartedly has all the resources to do well in math and decides i want to write i want to be a journalist (laughs) Mm -hmm. journalist then it's just like well are we going to tell them well you don't need to learn math you're fine no that's that's not a good reason (laughs) so i think an even better reason to your point about like your everyday mathematics class that you took math is everywhere And making important life decisions requires this deep math knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. There's um, a story that comes to mind. It's not quite specific to math, but it's specific to just having um, everyday skills. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really famous example in the school psychology literature. This, um, and it was actually, I'll plug really quick, um, this episode of, uh, I can't even think of that podcast at this point, (laughs) I think it was Radiolab. So Radiolab was talking, I I was first introduced about it um, through Radiolab. Um, This guy, Larry P, he was a man who lived in California and from a very young age, he was assessed using um, some much older intelligence tests Mm -hmm. and they placed him in special education and come to find that he wasn't getting any of the resources he should have been getting based on this one test, right? This one test, like uh, laid out the foundation for the rest of his life. And later on in his life, he gets this letter from the state of California saying he um, qualifies for resources because of this, this malpractice. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get, he didn't understand the letter and he didn't, wasn't able to, um, actually go out and get these resources because he didn't have the foundational skills. He didn't understand the letter. He wasn't able to decode what they were asking him to do. Mm -hmm. And I always think of that as we are literally telling people you need to be good at math to do well in STEM when really you need to be good at math for yourself. You need to yeah. make decisions. You gotta figure out, okay, what kind of mortgage am I trying to get? What <laughs> does my budget look like? How much do I need to do to double this recipe so I don't poison my family? Like these are really important things to think about, but I don't think we think about math, at least as researchers, we don't think about it in that. We always think of it, what about, oh, jobs that kids are gonna get? It's like, yes, but how can we also make sure they have full lives? And I yeah. think math is really a path to living a full life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Oh, I love that. I love that idea. Math is the path to living a full life. Yes. <laughs> um, That's that like such a good slogan, but it's so, it's so true. <laughs> because even as you were giving these examples, I was just thinking like, sometimes I don't want to make two dozen biscuits. Like I only right. want to make like six. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, it's just me. What am I going to do with all these biscuits? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't need to do that. Or even now that I'm like on this nutrition plan, I had to like weigh and measure stuff, but like make the conversions between, Mm -hmm. you know, metric system and all that. Like that's everyday math Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, tipping at restaurants or of course my favorite, like figuring out that discount that's you know that's when math really comes in handy <laughs>
2: yes yes I, I I always bother my husband when I'm like oh babe can you come over here and we'll be in the supermarket can you look tell me what the unit price is for this is this a good is this a good price and he always laughs because he's like you have to figure out how to do this at some point I'm like no why would I do that I have you here so.
1: <laughs> exactly exactly but yes I, yes but yes math is what we need to be successful and live a full life mm-hmm. uh, looking at those unit prices which I also do when I'm at the grocery store, I want to know which one of these am I supposed to look? like, I need to save these coins, like I need to know, but also just thinking about like, if you are making bigger purchases, and thinking about interest and compound interest and like, you know, you don't have to understand it, you know, completely, but you have to have an idea a baseline, like you said, still those foundational levels, yeah, then make informed decisions.
2: Right, and the saddest thing is that most of our students don't even have those, right? So we're expecting them to get to calculus because we wanna be able to say, oh, we had this many students in our school get to calculus. And it's like, well, they can't even tell you how much they would end up paying to go to college <laughs> um, and how much student loans they're gonna take out, end up taking out after it's all said and done, right? Um, so yeah, it's, 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 we, want, we want people living full, not just having great careers, but having a full life all around
1: math helps us have a full life. Now, I'm not sure if I ever would have thought about it in that way before, but as you can tell, even from listening to that short clip, math indeed helps us have a full life. So I love when I have guests that help me rethink my own daily life and think about how I am involved or perpetuating or even just shaped by some of these topics. I'm thinking again about a conversation that I had with Dr. Felicia Arriaga in episode 19 where we're talking about how all of us are impacted by and contribute to the immigration process. Now, another great conversation that helped me rethink or or reframe my own relationship to something that is a very hot topic right now was episode 24 when I talked with Dr. Julius McGee about climate change justice. Now this is something that I've definitely been thinking about more and more and you probably have too. You know issues of climate justice, climate change, and sustainability I think are more and more on our minds with everything that's happening in the world. So I got a chance to ask Dr. McGee you know what is climate justice? This is what he had to say.
3: It's a big term. It, it encompasses a lot. So in general, like it's kind of based on this reality that those who contributed least to climate change are most vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, the, that's the baseline definition. So you can imagine that has to do a lot, has a lot to do with where people live and how land has been allocated to certain groups of people based on the historical and existing legacies of oppression. So where they're relegated, where they have to live. In relation to others, so those who contribute most to the problem oftentimes also live in insulated spaces where they're not directly affected by climate change as it occurs even now, which is why we like why we can measure. Right, we know, for example, those who tend to not believe in climate change are those who oftentimes are most insulated from its effects. Um, so that's one way of thinking of it. The way I've approached the question in my work is to say, okay, yes, that's true. So um, we know that as as climate change unfolds, the most vulnerable populations. Uh, who've historically been marginalized under capitalism, but even through colonialism and all these things, patriarchy, all these things, we know these groups are most likely to be harmed by it. But I want to really understand the ways in which that's interconnected. What is that story? What I've been really interested in, which is how did certain groups of people end up in, in more vulnerable spaces, such that their vulnerability actively contributes to the problem. Now, I want to be clear: I'm not suggesting that they are the problem, because they're mm-hmm. not. But what I want to mean—what I mean by that—is that it's their oppression, it's the continued oppression of these groups that is continues that keeps us perpetuating the problem. That as we move forward, so we haven't really stopped contributing to climate change, right? Mm-hmm. We keep having these opportunities too, and we haven't. And that's because we continue to oppress. And that's the sort of story I've been really interested in, in my own work. Which is like, how do we understand the ways in which these things are related? How do we continue to, you know, emit fossil fuels um, in a way that actively exploits, you know, Black and Brown people, uh, specifically uh, women, children, families, right? People living in the Global South. How does this continue to happen?
1: I was also interested in this idea of energy poverty. I had never heard of this before, but Dr. McGee explained exactly what energy poverty is and why it's important to think about as we have these conversations about sustainability and about climate change and climate justice.
3: First, it's based on the reality of our current living situations that we all uh, require energy to live in our day-to-day lives. And that hasn't always been the case, but that is the case for many of us. So there's a base level of energy that is necessary that is required for people to live out their day-to-day lives for cooking, cleaning, you know, staying warm, what have you. Um, And sort of, you know, fun fact, the most energy that people consume in their households, right, so through electricity, oftentimes is just the baseline things they need. So heating your home, keeping your food uh, stored properly and cleaning. That's most of the time, most of the energy you use. So it's not really about like this conversation using our computers or charging your phone. It really is just the basic things. Um, Now, energy poverty is, looks at people who are impoverished specifically due to their inability to even uh, acquire the basic, the baseline level of energy needs or energy to produce their needs. So if you're having limited access to energy for a variety of reasons, perhaps you know there's just rolling blackouts where you live, which you know through climate change, that's going to increasingly be the case. Or maybe there hasn't been enough energy infrastructural development to keep pace with the changing structure of the landscape under which you're living. So maybe you now have more energy requirement needs to cook your food and to stay warm based on where you're living, but the infrastructure hasn't been developed. The last sort of point of that too is, Perhaps the sort of changing dynamics of the energy structure, like places we see in Texas, right, because we see private interest coming in and uh, jacking up prices means that people are choosing between paying, keeping their lights on or, you know, just not eating at all. So that's another whole group of people that we say live in energy poverty. I mean, then what you find too, right, so because you have that baseline reality of energy poverty is what we find is that when we attempt to address climate change, so this is kind of gets into the, the layers of complexity here, which I'll get to in a second. But just, you know, what I've found in my research is that as we implement new policies that are, you know, geared towards increasing the amount of renewable energy that we consume, we see that that exasperates energy poverty. Now, on the surface, that seems, you know, that just sucks, <laughs> just to put it lightly, um, that, you know, we people, as we're trying to address climate change, we're causing the problem. But I think what's fascinating is why that ends up happening. And so that has a lot to do with how we, the way in which we've implemented these policies are still under the same mindset of growth. Now, this is not a homogenous reality, right? So you look at some places, uh, you know, that are developing for the first time, like electrical grids, and they're relying on renewable energy, that is actually alleviating poverty. We right. look at places in India or places in like, uh, you know, South East, Southwestern uh, Africa, so like in Namibia. We look at those places, you know, increasing access to renewable energy infrastructure just simply means lifting people out of poverty. So more access to electricity where they otherwise didn't have it. Now, if you take a place, say, like the United States, where, you know, there's a there's a grid for everyone. There was a huge infrastructural project over 100 years ago to create this reality. And now on top of that infrastructure, we're actively trying to combat climate change. How have we been doing that? We've been doing that, as we usually do in the United States, at the expense of poor people, specifically poor black and brown communities. So what that looks like is that uh, the incentives that are put forth to to encourage folks to say put solar panels on their home, one of those incentives is that you know the ex- the excess energy that they produce, their homes produce, gets put back into the grid, right? And then they get a paid for that. They get a rebate for the energy that gets put back into the grid, that then is you know shipped off and sold to other groups. Uh, but the loss of funds from say large fossil fuel pr- producers, this is a little bit more, I'm oversimplifying this wanna be clear, but uh, <laughs> the the way in which uh, the way in which those funds are recollected oftentimes is through sort of policy gymnastics that ultimately mean that poor people who can't afford uh, for a number of reasons to even put forth the cash to put say solar panels on their home in the first place are having to pay more for fossil fuel based energy because there's a less there's a smaller market, right So to make sure they recuperate their losses, they are these poor groups are paying more. Like I said, like this is an oversimplification, but if you look at the details in the abstract, this is ultimately what you're seeing right consistently across. Uh, not just the United States, but also in Western Europe, um, that as we see these policies being implemented, they exasperate the number of people living in energy poverty.
1: If you're interested in learning more about climate justice and Dr. Julius McGee's work, definitely go back and check out episode 24. Now, another issue that continues to shape the world we live in for all of us is this issue of sexual violence. I was so honored to welcome Nicole Badera to the show on episode 20 as we talked about sexual violence and how all of us are impacted by it. And she made this important point about how men benefit from sexual violence even if they aren't perpetrators. Now, this may sound surprising or even confusing, but I'd like us to take a moment and tune into this part of the conversation because I think it's so important as we all think about ways that we can combat sexual violence.
4: Well, I mean, I think one component is sexual violence. We have this idea socially that the people who do it are deranged or there's something wrong with them um, psychologically, that they are bad, evil people. In reality, I think a more sociological approach to sexual violence is to recognize that it gives advantages to its perpetrators. And so people who, perpetrate sexual violence, it makes them feel powerful and it helps them get power. When we think about places where sexual violence is widespread, we're really talking about um, gender segregated spaces that are male only and are hyper competitive. And one of the reasons that sexual violence takes place in these spaces is because it gives these men something to um, brag about with each other. It gives them social currency over each other. They don't call it sexual violence, absolutely not. although they will brag about you know what they're saying as a sexual conquest in a really domineering way you know they're still talking about having power and control over you know women who they're treating as sexual objects right and so you get something from looking powerful And, you know, one of the ways that that can look like is looking like there are so many women who want to be with you, which is the way that a lot of them will make it sound like is I was able to get this unattainable woman. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot of work with queer survivors. And that is one of the reasons that lesbian women in particular are targeted. Their perpetrators often brag about being the only man who could ever be with them. And so the whole point is they don't want anyone else. They didn't want them either. But the idea is, you know, this makes me look more masculine. This makes me look more powerful. The other reason, so that's, you know, why perpetrators are invested in sexual violence. But the other reason that a lot of men as a group, and to some degree women, are invested in maintaining this gendered order is because all men are actually advantaged by sexual violence. And so, you know, the example that I like to use is thinking about the most mundane interactions that you have at work, where when women can't tell which men are safe, or how things could escalate, or they're afraid of sexual harassment, or they've learned over time that the thing that you should do is just, you know, being quiet and polite and agreeable, and then nothing will escalate, or you will, you know, if it does, you'll get blamed if you don't follow these gendered rules. That really advantages men in places like the workplace, because, you know, I can think about when a man comes to you with an unreasonable request where you need to get work done last minute, you need to cover for them or whatever it might be. Those feelings of what if this escalates are just sort of entrenched. It's subconscious. We don't even think about it. We don't think, oh, I'm afraid that this person's going to physically harm me. But that's just the way that we treat, to some degree, all men, because all men, um, I think, when this type of violence happens, It's usually by someone you know someone you like sometimes someone you love and so it's such a deep betrayal that it leads a lot of women to feel like i actually don't have a good gauge on what's safe and what isn't so i'm going to be cautious and protect myself all the time and those things we do to be cautious give men more space in society lead us to do favors for them that we wouldn't do otherwise. I mean, it's the reason why when a man comes up to a woman at a bar and she's not interested in him, she'll still like make nice conversation and she might, you know, maybe lie about having a boyfriend, but it's that same kind of dynamic of like, uh, you're an unknown. And so I have to be friendly and polite and, you know, make you feel good. Make you entertain the idea that I do want you, even if I can't, because I have a fake boyfriend or whatever it might be, but there are all of these little things, um, that all men benefit from when it comes to, you know, the existence of sexual violence, it benefits all men. And so even men who don't commit acts of sexual violence, a lot of them are invested in, you know, keeping this system going, not rocking the boat too much. Um, a lot of men, I mean, when you think about like the not all men hashtag mm-hmm. um, that, went viral years ago and like still hasn't gone away. (laughs) One of the reasons is because um, another thing is that when there's sexual violence happening in society for other men who don't commit it, like the bar is really low for all other kinds of behavior. So they can say, well, I'm not committing acts of sexual violence, not all men, as if that's enough to be a good partner, as if that's enough. Um, It keeps us from having other conversations about things like, are you doing an equal amount of housework? Are you doing an equal amount of childcare? When the bar is just, I'm not violent, you know, like there are all of these ways that it keeps gender inequality stable um, and gender inequality is full of advantages for men.
1: Thanks so much again to Nicole Badera for coming on the show and talking about what is often a very sensitive subject, but one that is so important, a conversation that we all must have. I'll be honest, as we talked in episode 20, there are a lot of things that Nicole shared that were in fact uncomfortable to hear, shocking to hear, but so important if we are serious about the health and wellness of our community as a whole. So I definitely encourage you to give that episode a listen. Let's take a break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is a very special episode as we're taking a look back on this past year of episodes all the wonderful folks that we've had a chance to talk to and to learn from. Now, one thing that has been a recurring theme over this past year of shows is ways to take care of ourselves. You know, there's been so much added pressure and stress with the COVID-19 pandemic, and so I found myself returning to folks who could talk to us about different ways to take care of ourselves, whether that was physical health or mental health. And one person that I got a chance to talk with was Ricky Dortch Jr. He's a nutritionist and a personal trainer. And back on episode 35, we talked about creating the best quality Of life. He shared so much information around health, around fitness and exercise, and also around nutrition. And one piece of information that I thought was so important and I wanted to share again here with you today was something that we should be paying attention to when we're in the grocery store, especially when it comes to these vices or these cheat treats that we love so much.
5: So, for individuals that have This so called vice or the things that they like to have in moderation, right? That's fine. That's all a part of life. Um, I think the part that, you know, kind of trips people up is they don't pay attention to the serving size of their vice. So if you really turn that box around or that bottle around and you pay attention to, okay, one cup is my serving size or one ounce is my serving size, if you do it that way, your life will be just fine. But if you do not, and you do not measure that out, you would end up having two, three serving size of your said vice. And now that the nutrition label on the back starts to triple. And that's how they end up getting tripped up.
1: Oh, you know what? That's a good, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Because when I found out that like a serving size of cheese is an ounce. And I don't know if y'all know this, but an ounce is nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. It is absolutely nothing. And if you like cheese, you don't eat just an ounce of cheese. You probably eating about 16 ounces of cheese (laughs) and i was so hurt by that like who are the people that made up the nutritional guidelines like so many people
5: just forget about that like every single thing in our house has a label on it right (sighs) and if you turn it around even if you see it says eight grams of uh carbs or eight grams of fat right okay cool If you scroll over, it has like a dot, 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 dot. And it goes down to the end, right? There's another section on there that says DV percentage. Mm -hmm. That's the daily value percentage, right? Mm -hmm. So if it says this amount of uh, fat is 50% of your daily value, but you've already had three serving sizes of it, you're 150% into your daily value. You're already over 100%. And
3: that's
5: the part that people don't, some people probably don't even know what the DV stands for. That's your daily value intake. And that's very important.
1: Oh, that is such good information. Just right there. Because I know that we all see the labels, but we often don't really investigate them and get into what, you know, what they really say. And often now, because so many foods are already, you know, labeled for us and they're quote unquote healthy option or, you know, healthy (laughs) food, you know, we just kind of go by that front packaging mm-hmm. and say, oh, this is healthy or you know, this is organic, so it must mean that mm-hmm. it's good or it has zero trans fat. So that mean must mean everything else is fine. Yeah. And we don't actually look on the back of the labels mm-hmm. and see. So speaking of that, what should we be looking at when we are looking at those nutritional labels?
5: Um so when you walk in the grocery store, you know, there's shakes out there, right? There's mm-hmm. pre-made shakes that are out there. I just throw a few names out there like you have your boathouse. Um, And all the other fruit, you know, smoothies that are out there that are in the frozen section or the refrigerator section. When it comes to labeling, I want people to understand first. Marketing is key for, you know, these people that create these products. So on the front of the label, which is the marketing side of the label, the truth is on the back. Marketing is on the front. That's how I like to say it. Right? Okay. We can put whatever. Well, the company can put whatever they want to on the front of their label to draw your eye in.
0: Really, anything.
5: Anything. So, you all have seen shakes that say, or smoothies that say, no sugar added. Mm -hmm. Oh, and the mind is like, okay, this has no sugar in it. I know this is healthy. Let me grab it. Then when you turn it over, Mm -hmm. it says 52 grams of sugar in it, right? Yes. So, it's no sugar added to what's already in it, Mm -hmm. right? So, that's the first part I want people to pay attention to because that's like the main thing that's out there that gets a person out. Oh, it's no sugar added. Oh, I'm healthy today. And that's not the case, Right. (laughs) So always turn that label around and just get to scanning your facts. Now, at the end of the day, if um, uh, per FDA and things like that, if there's so small of an ingredient in it, they don't have to list it. Mm -hmm. Right. As far as a percentage base. But if you scroll on down and take your eyes on down a little bit and go to where it says ingredients, read the ingredients on the label because they can't lie about what's in the product. But they don't have to report the percentage if it's so low. Okay. So, that's the key thing. So, just read your ingredients, read your labels, and don't pay attention to the front side of the bottle.
1: Oh, so we got to rethink how we are shopping, mm-hmm. then, because you're right. It's the front of the packaging that catches our eye. Mm-hmm. Or if you have kids that's catching your kid's eye, and we know that kids usually run in the household exactly, as far as what's Exactly, purchased. exactly. So, that kind of draws us in, and then we can kind of forget, like, oh, all mm-hmm. the good stuff we need to know is actually on the back. Is there anything in particular, if we see it on the back of the nutritional label, we should just put that item down?
5: Um, honestly, for I'm gonna start with women. It, it goes for women and men. Honestly, anything that you see that has a high dairy intake in it, um, yeast, things like that, we don't want to have a lot of of that in our bodies, right? Okay. As far as women, estrogen levels, you know, um, can cause your periods to be just ten times worse. Uh, for men, it can really take you away from your physique that you want to have mm-hmm. as far as accumulating more body fat. Mm-hmm. So we want to stay away from the excess amount of uh, sugars where you see like fruit, fructose, sucralose. Anything that you see lows on the backside of it okay. isn't dextrose, <laughs> All of those are sugar. Um, yeast, you have your, uh, you know, whether it has gluten in it, things like that. So you just want to stay away from those things for the most part. Anything that has a, a high sodium intake, just stay away from it. Okay. Stay away from it.
1: Now when it comes to creating the best quality of life, it's not only about fitness and nutrition, even though that's a very big part of it, it's also about our mental health and I know there's been increasing attention around mental health and especially around therapy as well. In fact, on episode 36, I talked to a licensed therapist, Cameron Lee Small, and he really walked us through what therapy is like, how to find a therapist, and what that process process will feel like as you engage in a therapeutic relationship. And I thought that was such an excellent conversation because there's still a lot of stigma around seeking out therapy. So I encourage you to listen to that episode as well. But I also got a chance to talk to Ashley around Malate on episode 44 and we really keyed in on mental health and some things that we might be able to do Um, In the meantime, if we're waiting to get an appointment with a therapist. So let's take a listen.
0: In the here and now, the short and dirty is there are, this is a very nerdy reference, but that we've got some chemicals in our brain that we can intentionally control with our thoughts. We can, you know, with our own breathing, we can regulate our heart. And it's, it's just a really fascinating thing. But same thing with our thoughts. We can control to a certain degree our highs and lows if we're wanting to feel that hit like a good happy hit writing a to-do list and checking off some stuff mm-hmm.
1: you no
0: know, or i love music it's deeply regulating for the nervous system you know especially when you got your headphones on and they're good quality <laughs> good music that just makes you feel safe inside it doesn't have to be about anybody else um boundaries Let's talk about boundaries because, you know, a few years ago when I got really into just mindfulness practices and controlling my internal environment as well as my external as best as I could, mindfulness sounds hippy-dippy and I love trying to demystify it because scientifically, if we can control our thoughts and how we see ourselves and how we see our situation, we have the power to control our life. Mm. And. Boundaries is one of those words where we think like, uh, oh, I mean, it sounds really rigid and it could feel rigid if you're not used to having order in your life or order in your mind. And there are different types of boundaries that people can in- include in self-care. There's time boundaries, right? Um, I'm going to go to bed at nine o'clock every night because I know if I stay up too late, I'm going to be miserable in the morning. I'm going to oversleep for work and I'm going to self-sabotage, right? Or... Or, hey, Sana, I know you're really busy, but I want to check in. I have a question I got to ask you about, you know, writing a grant. And you say, yes, I can talk to you, Ash, but I only got 30 minutes, right? And I'm not, and I can respect that. Someone who wants to honor your boundaries will respect, like, okay, cool, 30 minutes, got it. There are um, financial boundaries. Uh, I've got my credit cards memorized because I like the online shop. That's just... Something I struggle with, you know, we're working through it, but financial boundaries are ways that we can just help control our own internal environment too, right? You get that rush when you buy something new or if you're feeling kind of bad. But if we can be like, you know what, that money is for um, a business idea that I have, I'm going to save it. Um, Being mindful of what we consume, I call it conscious consumerism. What are we looking at on TV? What are we looking at on social media that might trigger us subconsciously to think certain ways about ourselves that are not serving us, right? What are we putting in our bodies? Um, at very, very simply, food can be used to fuel our bodies optimally, or it can be used to hurt us, you know? The wrong food choices, not being hydrated, can affect our moods. And I I wanna encourage people to know that when possible, right? I don't think everybody should be running to the farmer's market. I know everybody doesn't have the same access, but even if you live in a food desert or or somewhere where you just don't have the best access, being mindful of what you're putting in your body and appreciating it and knowing that it can help serve you can are are just basic um, self-care practices. Emotionally, emotional boundaries, physical boundaries I love hugs but you know maybe not every day those kind of things just to help people know that they can I, I can verbalize my needs I know how to put words to my feelings like with I feel statements so now I feel comforted when you give me a compliment versus you may be mad mm. I feel mad when you say things like this putting words to our feelings in a different way can really help us. Know what we need, be consistent with those things, and know how to search out those things that fulfill our needs.
1: You can listen to the rest of that episode and any of these other shows that I've talked about and highlighted so far this morning on wyxr.org or in podcast format on Apple, Spotify, or any streaming platform. Just look for Let's Grab Coffee, WYXR, and you can listen to the complete show. Over the past year, there have been so many impacts to our mental health, whether COVID-19 pandemic, continual acts of racial violence, or even all of the natural disasters that we've been experiencing around the United States. There's no way for us to know how these events might impact us, but we can of course engage in some of the practices that Ashley outlined, but those are not the only ways that we can channel our energy. Recently, I talked to Maya Sane, a digital artist, and they talked about how they use their art to raise awareness to a variety of issues that are happening in society, but also how they are able to use their art to showcase different aspects of people, of places, and of issues in ways that are also joyful. In this clip, we talk about one of their very first collaborations and the event that sparked it. Let's tune in.
6: The collaboration um, basically started, I made this illustration. Well, let me back it up, back it all the way up. Um, At some point, um, my health had taken a, um, it had taken a route that I did not see desirable. So I was making myself exercise more, get out the house more, especially during the pandemic when we're literally stuck inside. So I was going to the parks, definitely running, walking, just making sure I kept my body um, active and to also produce like dopamine and all the other great yeah. things that keep you happy and nice. Um, but once um, that story about Aubrey, um, it was just very upsetting to know that two um, men thought it was um their right to take a life away um, of this black man who was in this like who was just running in the neighborhood, very similar to what I do every day and literally was killed for just being a regular person just running down the street like getting his exercise just being a fitness like enthusiast and these people were like, you're in this wrong neighborhood. And they shot him and that really made me angry that made me very disturbed and i just didn't know how to go about it and that's how i came up with the illustration and that's what that illustration was just like a person running in the background that said let me run because i'm like i should be able to do whatever i want to do and also um if i'm in a situation like why would you choose to how, like how can you justify taking someone's life in someone's life? and this person has not done anything to you and they're not interrupt. They're not harming you in any way. They're just existing. And that just um, took another turn for me. That was really a emotional response that I felt very passionate about. And uh, my friend came to me and was like, hey, I think we should, uh use that design so we can donate to the cause you know for you know because people were going out you know rioting going to jail you know all the stuff so we wanted to make money to get bailout money to make sure Mm -hmm. that people had the funding so like you know the person who passed like you know like make sure that they had money in order to uh you know do funeral classes and stuff like that and then just donating to just different organizations who Cared about you know Black Lives, so that that collaboration was a big thing for me. I was not expecting the turnout that it did. I'm appreciative of it, but that that collaboration was not about me. That was just bringing awareness and like just having a reaction or a response to something that Black people like me see every day and being like I'm tired. <laughs> um, and so that was that was just a big uh, project for me and. Harrison did such a great job just helping me through all of that. And I can't wait to work with him in the future. Like we're going to do something. (laughs) So, yeah. Yes.
1: yes. I love that illustration. I love the shirts and, you know, I think it, brought attention to multiple issues, of course, the specific issue of Ahmad Aubrey's life being taken by two white supremacists, um, but yes. also, as you mentioned, the broader issue of Black folks being profiled and not being able to just enjoy a leisure activity or a health activity At in their all. own communities, right? Exactly, yes. And I think, you know, for some folks, um, they're not aware of that, that Black people are thinking about can I even go for a run in my own neighborhood? Do I need to have ID on me? How can I prove that I belong here, Um, here in my community, here in this nation, right here as a human being? And so I think that was so important. Um, Again, your work is so joyful, even when it is talking, of course, about a very important issue, but I think it also gives folks some encouragement, right, and a sense of Um, being seen. And I think that's so important.
6: Oh, I love the way that you worded that. That was fantastic. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you for taking the words out of my brain that just went poof. Um, But no, that's exactly how I felt. Um, I just thought it was a great opportunity just to showcase all of those things like, hey, let's talk about this. But the way that I, the reason why I really enjoy my work is I'm not making my work palatable. That is not what I'm seeking to do. I'm not trying to comfort like people who, I don't know, there's certain people who be on my page. I'm like, this is not for you. I'm just trying to let you be aware, but I'm not trying to like save your feelings. You know, this is factual. Um, it's just more so I like my work to be approachable. Like I want it, you know, it's joyful. It's nice. It looks like something you will see <laughs> most likely in a children's book, but, you know, people look at it and they're just like, you know, you can have your own opinions. You can have discussions, but it's great to have, the like ability or feel like you can talk about it. And like that piece can start that, you know, if you're not able to like bring it up, like this piece can allow that. So yeah, I think
1: it's wonderful. I love this idea of like art that is approachable, but not comfortable. To listen to the complete conversation with Maya, tune in to episode 49. Let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and this is a very special show. It was just a year ago that Let's Grab Coffee hit the airwaves, and I've been able to bring you in-depth conversations with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Now, one topic that has popped up throughout this past year has been media and pop culture in particular. Back on episode 12, I got a chance to catch up with Dr. Melissa Brown, and we talked about digital media and black feminism, and we even talked about the hit show P-Valley. Of course, as part of this conversation around media, I also got to talk a lot about music. So I talked to Memphis-owned Marco Pave back in episode 26, and we talked about hip-hop. And then in episode 15, I chatted with Dr. Brian Foster about his book, I Don't Like the Blues. You definitely have to check out that conversation. But one other piece of pop culture that I learned so much about and that I know you will enjoy too, was my conversation with Dr. Myron Strong when we talked about comics. This was episode 40, and I'll be honest, I'm not a comic book reader. I am a big fan of all the different Marvel um, and Avenger movies, but I'm not a comic book reader. But through the conversation with Dr. Strong, I learned so much about why comics are important as we think about society, both as it is and as it could be. Let's take a listen.
7: There's a comic called The Beauty,
8: mm-hmm.
7: okay? And the whole comic centers around that there's a, a sexually transmitted disease that if you catch it, it makes you beautiful. So you respect the beautiful, thin muscles, chin, whatever, right? <laughs> The catch is you only have 800 days from catching it or you're going to blow up. You spontaneously explode. <laughs> Still, you have more than half the U.S. population who are trying to get the STD. <laughs> <laughs> Even though they know they only got 800 days left so they can live this, this life and beauty. So it's a really interesting critique of what beauty is because mm-hmm. it's told through vignettes. The ways in which people use beauty to escape. Yeah. And, or the way they use beauty to a benefit. So it's a really exploration around the ideal of beauty. That's really sort of nuanced, right? So you have trans characters in there using beauty as a way to escape. You mm-hmm. have people who are criminals, who are, you know, 300 pounds doing a bunch of crime. <laughs> beauty, escaping. You have people who hate beauty and they're doing, they're mutilating themselves mm-hmm. so that they don't fit in. But it's also because so many people are trying to catch the beauty. There is no real connection to people, right? Mm-hmm. Because people are looking at you and saying, oh, you're attractive, you must have this beauty. And they just want to sleep with you. But there's no value in who you are and all this stuff. So I think it's a actual exploration to all the complications around beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also there's another comment called Faith, that that is the, the maybe the one, the one comment that I, I found that embraces the idea that she's a plus size, super uh, powered person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not talking about 150 pounds. Like me. She's 280, five five and she embracing me. So this idea that she embraces how she looks and she's this powerful ki- person and character, I think it's something that challenges. You're just talking about just general narratives in terms of gender and beauty. Yeah. I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Wow! like
1: I would have never imagined like the, that comics are exploring all of these issues. So now I'm like, wow, I got to get into comics and like see what else <laughs> is out there, because I think it's, you know, just those that you described right now, I think resonate so much because, you know, beauty, beauty standards, whatever they may be, are such a big part of our lives um, in every, you know, if we're all the ads that we're targeted by, you know, commercials that we see, um, you know, everything is very much centered around, you know, appearance, what beauty is trying to fit into some ideal. And even if we meet that ideal, we still feel, you know, um, dissatisfied, right? And, and And what you said, I think really keys in on it, right? There's this As humans, we all have this need to belong, this need to have connections. And are we going about those in ways that are really producing the healthy connections and healthy sense of belonging? Or are we, you know, like the comic that you described, are we engaging in all these really harmful behaviors that lead to self destruction, but allow us to maybe feel like we fit in, you know, for, you know, 800
7: right. days or so. <laughs> 800 days? You get 800 days and then you're good. <laughs> there's a, there's also a, a comic that is still some interest and in it's called B-Planet. Mm-hmm. B, I'm not going to say the word, but planet. <laughs> basically you get a planet and all these women who don't act right, they send them to another planet. <laughs> like a prison planet to do it. That That's an interesting exploitation of how you should act and stuff. But going back to this ideal of comics giving us a different perspective and why it's important that we explore like different characters. So in 2015, Marvel put really forth the diversity initiative to try to to put characters. So they basically shifted Iron Man, who's a black woman. So mm-hmm. the Invisible Iron Man became Iron Heart, which is Riri Williams, which got her own comic, which was written by Eve Ewing, who's a sociologist at University of Chicago, which is wonderful. <laughs> um, like also, but one of the more interesting And that's actually what got me back into comics. So four years ago, four or five years ago, uh, I heard that they was changing Iron Man into a black woman. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh man, this is what got me. I was not doing comics at all. And I was doing like reality TV and this kind of stuff. So I go and I see it and I'm like, wow, this is just so impactful. So then I just get into studying more minority characters in comics. Then I said, man, I can't be a 40-year-old dude just hanging out at the comic book (laughs) store. Let me say I'm researching it. Like, oh it's, oh, it's research. Everything we're doing. You eat McDonald's, it's research. So <laughs> <laughs> and we, we use research to come up everything. So okay I started doing this, right? And one <laughs> more interesting ideas of talking about narratives that are created, not even alternative, but just about changing the characters, is Totally Awesome Hulk. So mm. Incredible Hulk becomes a Korean guy named Amadeus Cho. Mm. He's arrogant. He's smart. He's in control. He's completely different than Bruce Banner, but there's a scene in issue 15 where it's him, and he's sitting with Silk, who's a Korean Spider-Woman, mm-hmm. um, chang Chi, who they're doing the movie about, Miss mm-hmm. um, Marvel, and they're sitting around, and they're talking, and they're talking about their experiences being immigrant kids and having to bring lunch to school, and then bringing traditional Korean food and the the American kids having lunchables and looking at them and they sort of reflecting on that experience. And it was the one, that was the one scene that made me look at the character and the narrative very differently because it brought something that I had never seen, an experience that I wouldn't have experienced unless they had taken and challenged the narrative, right? And this also means that they have to have writers who understand the experience.
1: Even from that brief clip, you can get a sense for how much comics play a role in getting us to think about society in different ways, maybe different ways than we're used to, but also in ways that help us reimagine what society could look like. Now, of course, a lot of the conversations I've had over this past year helped us do just that, to rethink the world that we live in. And oftentimes, of course, I talked a lot about current issues to hopefully give you a lens to think about what's happening but also to think about a way to move forward. I think one of those conversations that was so timely and that did just that was a conversation that I had with Dr. Vivian Shaw and Christina Ong. Now, they're both a part of the Asian American Pacific Islander COVID-19 Project or the AAPI COVID-19 Project. And we got a chance to talk about, of course, COVID-19 and its impact on Asian American and Pacific Islander communities specifically as we're thinking about the resurgence of racism and xenophobia as it pertains to Asian Americans. So let's tune into some of this conversation.
9: Um, yeah so I think one thing that um, you know we are exploring right now which I'm trying to develop into a paper um, is thinking about how um, you know anti-Asian racism in this particular form has Uh, push some Asian Americans to think about their identities more and to think about what does racism mean? Because I think, you know, for us sociologists, these are questions that we think about all the time, right? So like, I take a shower, I'm like, oh, racism, right? (laughs) I'm like, brushing my teeth. And like, these are, uh, they constantly have to think about all this stuff, but I don't think it's necessarily um, a topic that everybody is thinking about all the time. And I think particularly because the narrative around Asian Americans, especially East Asian Americans has been that um, we have been successful. Um, a lot of people have not, ne- a lot of Asian Americans have not necessarily engaged with these questions for better or worse. Sometimes I know a lot of them have felt that they don't know how to, or that they don't feel they have the right to, right? And so I think that the um, kind of intensification of anti-Asian racism has um, you know, forced them to kind of think of some of these questions. And, you know, something that's interesting that is coming up as a theme, which, you know, we still have to kind of analyze more, is that um, alongside this, the um, the upswell in, um, in protests against uh, pr- police brutality impacting um, Black communities, um, especially in the wake of uh, George Floyd over the summer, that actually also was um, a sort of a framework that a lot of our respondents referred to to kind of think about their own racial identities, right? And so I think a lot of them um, were thinking about Black Lives Matter, right? And thinking about um, racism in this broader sense and thinking about uh, broader kind of anti-racist coalitions across, you know, uh, different races, right? So I think those were questions that came out. And I think that it speaks both to like the potential for solidarity, as well as the Kind of greater work that we need to do within Asian American politics and studies to, um, you know, help offer frameworks that are more useful, right? Because I don't, I think that it is kind of a misstep to um, to predicate Asian American politics in the politics of other POC communities but rather I think we need to kind of think about how these exchanges have overlapped over time, right? So kind of what I had mentioned earlier in terms of early segregation laws, um, you see how uh, segregation laws that then kind of became the foundation for um, educational segregation impacting, you know, um, black students and white students, how that kind of took shape in early laws about you know um, you know schooling impacting Asian immigrants, right? So I think that rather than thinking about there's one um, you know set of racial politics that then precedes others, we can think about how a lot of these different communities um, have been racialized in tandem, right? And so I think that those types of connections are really important to make.
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I love the answer, Vivian, and I just want to build on that because I think. W- if Vivian's right. A lot of our respondents have talked about how Black Lives Matter and the movement against police brutality, particularly against Black folks in the U.S., have motivated them to think about racial identity beyond their Asianness and think about how they are situated in this broader landscape of race within the U.S. context. Um, just yesterday, a colleague of mine, who's um, a Chinese international student, I was just checking in to see how she was doing and she just said very plain like I'm really sad I thought after last summer things are going to get better like people people were in solidarity with each other like they knew that racism sucks so why is like why is this still happening and it just I mean it just hit me like exactly what Vivian says there's still so much that we have to do to educate ourselves and to be in actual solidarity with one another Um, and something that um, Tiffany Dianso said in a panel I was hosting r- earlier this week, um, she's from the Asian American Feminist Collective, she said that solidarity to her is like relationships. And when you think about the ways that you're in relation with your friends or your family, it's sort of innate that, yeah, you care about them, you're in solidarity with them, you want what's best for them. It's not even a question of like political um affiliation or anything it's like you care about that person because you have a relationship with that person um, for better or worse and so I try and think about that when we're doing our research when we're thinking about the broader movement for justice for people of color in in this country and in the greater world Um, like how, how would I want a friend of mine who is of a different race or ability or gender identity to feel when I'm when I'm with them? And like, how how do I want to be like, so in support of them? Um, And that's helped me a little bit, I think, in in framing how to move forward, because it's been hard this week. Mm
9: -hmm. And, you know, just to kind of tag onto that, um, I think what that also uh, points to is the need to think about process, right? When we uh, talk about solidarity. Uh, Oftentimes, people focus again, like on this um, kind of the framework of an event, right, or a trigger. Uh, people, um, and you know, like just kind of give you a very concrete example. Um, my book project looks at that in the context of mobilization after the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster, right? This moment kind of being treated as an awakening that then uh, drew out um, people who would not have kind of considered themselves activists before to then get involved with this. Um, But what I kind of found was that um, precisely because the moment was so powerful in creating this momentum, it uh, attempted to kind of gloss over a lot of these existing tensions and did so in a way that was really complicated, right? And so I think similarly, we often, um, you know, as a, you know, general public respond to a moment or respond to um, a something that seems like a crisis and then just wanna jump in and act on it. And I think that's a very human um, impulse, but really when you think about what makes more, you know, the most effective forms of organizing, it is organizing that has been going on for a while that has been, uh, you know, developed and maintained over years. And I think like right now, for instance, you know, there's a lot of attention to Red Canary Song um, because of their work organizing massage workers. Um, But they didn't just come out in response to the Atlanta shooting, they have been, they've existed for a long time uh, to organize people. And so I think similarly, um, when we think about developing relationships and developing solidarity, it involves um, thinking about how, how are people connected to each other and how do you build upon that in a way that honors people's contributions, um, rather than, you know, creating a situation in which people feel exploited.
1: That was episode 21 with Dr. Vivian Shaw and Christina Ong. And one thing that I think is so important is how all of these conversations, the issues and the topics and even the strategies that I've discussed with my guests, they're still so relevant today. If you'd like to listen to these shows in their entirety, please go to wyxr.org All of Let's Grab Coffee is archived there, and you can also subscribe wherever you stream podcasts. Just search for Let's Grab Coffee WYXR. Well, we're almost at the end of our time this morning. I hope you've enjoyed this review of Let's Grab Coffee one year on air. It's been such a pleasure to be able to connect with you every week. This is definitely a highlight of my week, and I look forward to seeing you back here next Monday morning at 11 a.m. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa.